Good morning, everyone. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and that this morning we are reminded, even if you're in the midst of a season where it's easy to lose sight of all that we have to be grateful for, that this morning you would find fresh reason to rejoice and give thanks in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. We are beginning uh, our Advent series today. Advent is from the word Latin, uh, the, from the Latin word that means arrival or coming. And this Christmas season, we're going to be beholding the coming of Christ in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Glorying in Christ's first coming, as we do every year, helps us to cultivate worship for all of his goodness and grace towards us now, even as we long for and wait for his second coming, for his second arrival, for the king to return to us again. And we want to honor the word this morning as we begin this Advent series by looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is a section that in your Bible reading, you may be tempted to skim over or just to skip entirely. Um, but my prayer is that this section of Scripture that you might normally skip would produce worship in your heart for all of God's goodness to us in Christ. So before we begin, let's pray and ask Him to speak to our hearts. Father, there is an abundant reason to rejoice in You. Thank you, Lord. There's, there's no words, there's no song that can adequate, adequately express our praise to you for sending the Christ appointed for us to redeem a people for your own possession. I pray that right now, Lord, every heart, you would tune our hearts to your scriptures, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law that you would incline our hearts to understanding, that you would give us your wisdom, that your spirit would come and lead us into conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and that you would show us fresh and give us a, a real humble heart of worship, all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, may it be true of us that Christ is our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, all of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written by those respective evangelists. And then they have different angles, different approaches that they use to tell the story, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Mark was written to a Roman audience to showcase the Lord Jesus as the promised suffering servant of God. And so in the beginning of Mark, we don't find a genealogy because servants have no need of a genealogy. He's a servant, and he's come to serve as the, as the promised servant of God. Luke was written by a Gentile for a Gentile audience, showing Christ to be the perfect man. And so throughout Luke, you see the humanity of Jesus on full display. John is an account for the whole world, and it showcases Christ's divine origins. It doesn't focus on his earthly family, but on his eternality from the beginning. This was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world and the one who was sent forth from the Father in the fullness of time. But Matthew was written by a Jew 
to a Jewish audience to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. And throughout Matthew, we see many, 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 more than any other gospel, Old Testament quotations to showcase that Jesus came to fulfill all the promises of God, to satisfy all this longing, these thousands of years of hope and longing that the Jews had waiting for the promised Messiah. Matthew is written to showcase that Jesus fulfills every promise that God made to us concerning the Christ. So this chapter begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's going to serve as sort of a thesis of the beginning of our time together, but this first phrase was not just an introduction to a genealogy, but a title over the whole gospel itself. This is not just saying, here's the beginning of this genealogy. This word for genealogy is Genesis. It's the same word that is used in the title of the first book of the Bible. It's used to recount the history of the beginnings of God's creation and the beginning of the people of God. And so Matthew is opening this gospel saying this is the story, this is the history of Jesus Christ. And that word Christ is loaded with meaning and with fulfilling this expectation and longing. Matthew doesn't use it often. If he used it, uh, it's maybe used three other times. The other two times that he uses the word Christ are not in every manuscript. So this could be the only time that he for sure uses the term Christ. And he's using it as the intro to say, this is the promised one now arrived, the one that we have been waiting for. And using this term for Genesis, it's as if to say, This is a new beginning. This is a story of a new history, of a new creation that God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ. So we read on in verse, we're going to go verse 2 through uh, 17. And you guys pray for me because there's some names in here. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Y'all doing all right? Okay. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom, to whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportations to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right, we did it. That's our text for today. There we are. Y'all ready to go home? (laughs) So we have this thesis statement. What is important is to the Jews, Matthew is writing to showcase this Christ's genealogy goes back to all the right people in all the right places. This is the promised one, our Savior. That is the point of today's message. So we begin, so remember the, the title, that thesis over all of that. And there's reasons why 14 generations from, from Abraham to David and David to the deportation, from the deportation to Joseph were all, importantly, 14 and there's a lot of different reasons that are potentially stated. Some say that 14 is two seven, so it's sort of this perfect completion, that there's this complete fullness to uh, the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Um, but we're not diving into numerology this morning. We're diving into what is the significance that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David and that he came to this family. And so we're going to follow this genealogy by these sections, the, the son of Abraham and then David, sort of in the first half and then this back half um, where it gets increasingly sinful and less significant. So first, the son of Abraham. The, uh, there is the first third of the Bible, the first third of time retort- recorded in scriptures, Genesis 1 through 11. And we know that uh, by the time things get to Genesis 5, God regrets that he had made men on the earth and he sends a flood and he wipes out the creation that he had made and he rescues a family and preserves for him a new creation through this family in the person of Noah. And he commands them to be fruitful and to multiply. And then things downgrade fresh again all the way to the Tower of Babel where Mankind is trying to work together to uh, achieve godness. They're trying to, to build this tower to the heavens so that they can again be like God. And so God scatters them. And then from an idolatrous people, God sets his love on a man. And he calls him to be uh, the head of a new nation, a nation that would be God's very own people. And the identity of the children of Abraham is wrapped up in these promises. So let me read a few of them to you. From Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we have the calling of Abraham out of his idolatry, out of the land of Ur, to be God's uh, chosen nation. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So years pass, and Abraham's still without this promised offspring, and he's going to God, and he's saying, look, this other servant in my house, he'll be my offspring, because he's growing weary in the midst of trusting God for this promise. And in Genesis 15, God doubles down on the promise. He brings Abraham outside. He says, look towards heaven 
and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Then God sends him the promised son. Isaac is born, and Abraham is brought to a place where God calls him to take this son, his only son whom he loves, and to sacrifice it at Mount Moriah. And God does it all to test him to see, do you really love me? This is what real faith looks like, is an obedience to God that loves and treasures him more than even our greatest earthly treasures, even the things that we hope in the most outside of God. And so Abraham passes this test. He goes up, brings Isaac up to the mountain. Right when he has the knife raised over his only son, God stops him. And he says to him, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham has this covenant with God where God has made these massive promises to him concerning inheriting the land of promise and that there would be this promised offspring through whom he would bring blessing to him and to his family and from them to all the peoples of the earth. And Paul writes to the Galatians that every one of those references to offspring in those texts that I just now read to you were all singular. They were about God promising not just coming offspring a huge genealogy of people, but a specific man that would come from the line of Abraham who himself would be the one to secure the blessing, to secure the land, the new earth that would be for all the believers of God and who would himself be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It's in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is known in all the history of Israel. This promise is made to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ came. And so, as Eric said, there are generations and generations of people who are hoping and longing for the fulfillment of this promise, where there would come one who would bring them into the land of God to dwell with God as his people under the blessing of God forever. We saw in our Genesis series that God extended his promise to his sons and his sons after them concerning the land and the seed and the blessing. God doubles down on his covenant promises to Isaac and then to Jacob and then from Jacob's sons to Judah. And you can see this in the genealogy. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah. And so it goes on from there. You remember from Genesis 49 in our Genesis series how when Judah is blessing his sons, he, I mean, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he looks at Judah and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until the one comes to whom it belongs. And so we see throughout history this narrowing of where this promised seed of the woman is coming to. This one that would crush the head of the serpent that was promised to Eve, we know comes through the line of Noah and then we know comes through the line of Abraham and then from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob and then now specifically among the 12 sons of Jacob to Judah. 
you see over all throughout this, and time fails us to, to point out all the different types and pointers and signs to the Christ who is to come from this first section of the genealogy. But uh, there's reference to men like Boaz, who if you go read the book of Ruth, Boaz is a, a type or a picture of the kinsman redeemer to come, who would redeem his people out of their sin. There's reference to Tamar and to Rahab and to Ruth, all honoring women in where women are not normally mentioned in genealogies. These are women and they are all from among the nations. And so it's as if to say this, this coming Christ, his salvation would be for all the people. He would, he would come and save people. His blessing would go to the ends of the earth, to Rahab, who was a prostitute from among the Canaanites, to Ruth, who is a Moabites, who, according to the temple regulations, couldn't even enter the temple of God. This Messiah would, would draw to himself and redeem from among the nations a people for his own possession. All the while, all this time, from the, from the promise to Abraham forward, these arrows were pointing ahead to the coming of Christ, even as his people longed for his arrival. So in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah is praising God for this revelation that his son would be a prophet that went before the Most High God, this is the father of John the Baptist, he exclaims in worship in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So this arrival of Christ was the remembering of a covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring. Matthew is announcing, here is the coming offspring, the one who would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth and who would possess the gate of his enemies. But the genealogy doesn't stop with Abraham. It goes on to Christ being the son of David. Now, David was not the first of the kings of Israel, but he was the greatest. He's described as being a man after God's own heart, the one who wholeheartedly worshiped God. He was not a perfect man. His sins are, are deeply recounted in the stories of his life, but he was a man who knew how to repent and he had his trust in the Christ who was to come. And when David comes to the end of his reign and God had blessed him throughout his reign and they exercised dominion and the kingdom grew greatly during the reign of David. And towards the end of his reign, David wants to build a temple for God. And God tells him by the prophet Nathan that he would build a house for David, not David, a house for God. This is from 1 Chronicles 17, verse 11 through 14. God says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is the God's covenant with David, this Davidic covenant. And it was an unconditional promise from God that the Messiah would come 
from David's offspring. We know that in the immediate, this promise that a son from David would build for God a house happened with Solomon building this beautiful, glorious temple in Israel. And they enjoyed the height of prosperity and the reign as a kingdom in the rule of Solomon. And so you're left wondering, is this the establishment of the coming Christ who is to come? The one God promised David that his son would rule and reign forever and Israel is growing and prospering under the reign of Solomon. But then Solomon goes into idolatry and leads the kingdom astray. But note that God's promise to David wasn't just that his son would rule on his throne, but that he would rule forever. This promise was bigger than Solomon. This is the son of David who would have a throne that would be established and would never be taken away from him. And this was given a thousand years before the coming of Christ into the world. It was a promise to David concerning the final king. One would come from the offspring of David, a real Jew in real time, a real king of Israel. One would come from his physical line who would be the king of all kings, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, the final king. And he would come from David's line. Isaiah prophesies of this king 300 years later, but still 700 years before the coming of Christ in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. He prophesies, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This son of David would be mighty God in the flesh. This is no mere man, no mere son of David. This would be for to us, a child would be born who would come and who would establish the kingdom forever. This was going to be the ruler to end all rulers who would, as God promised Abraham, possess the gate of his enemies. This is the eager hope and expectation of all the people of God. This is why you see that the Jews were eagerly expecting an earthly king who would make great this Israeli Jewish empire. It's why after Jesus raises from the dead, the disciples ask him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? This was the longing, the hope of all the people of God that Israel would have a kingdom again on the earth that would never be destroyed. So when the angel appears to Mary and announces to her that she will conceive a son, he says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end so we we pull all these promises and threads together so that you would see layer upon layer thousands of years of promises upon thousands of years of promises all coming to a point in a moment in a person this is what matthew is intending to do what's all this phrase is so pregnant with all of this promise and background. This is 
a new beginning. This is the one that we have waited for. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king who is to come, the one who would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, the one who is the rightful king over all the cosmos. This is the Christ, the promised one. So I want to turn now to the second half of this genealogy, to the specific name and the mission of this Christ, the king. So we have from, in this section from David through captivity all the way to Jesus. Jesus. And I want you to note that this is not an account of felt board Sunday school like heroes of Israel who didn't have any promises and you need to be like these people. This genealogy, what is most conspicuous about it is not that it's full of holy people or people of noble integrity, but that it is laden with sinful people who made a mess of their lives. And this is what we see and what we saw through our series in the book of Genesis was that this was not mainly an account of godly people or people who had never sinned, but of sinful people of imperfect faith in a perfect God who is gracious and merciful, who is abounding steadfast love and who remembers his covenant. This, this genealogy kind of works like a mountain peak and it peaks at Solomon where we see that they, Israel enjoyed their greatest prosperity, the greatest riches, the greatest blessing of God in the reign of Solomon. But then Solomon's heart turns away and we see it getting progressively sinful all the way to the deportation of Babylon. And you need to hear, when you hear the deportation to Babylon, you need to hear that like a Jewish person where all of the promise of God and his promise to Abraham was that he would bless them in the land of promise. And so the deportation to Babylon marked the God removing his blessing from his people and sending them into exile because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry, that their hearts had turned away from God so much so that God said, I am sending you away from my presence. And he was sending them to, to discipline them for their wickedness. But you can look at the names in this list. It's not that it just starts out well. You can look, we saw in the life of Abraham, this great man of faith who lied about his wife, who went to Egypt in unbelief instead of trusting God in the land of promise. We saw the same sins happen in Isaac and then again in Jacob who wrestled with God and resisted God and was delayed in taking the land that God had promised we see Judah who refused to raise up offspring. And so Tamar is mentioned who is more righteous than Judah in deceiving him into getting her pregnant so that uh, she would have a son and, and they would have this leveret marriage where she would have a, a son that was redeemed from the brothers that had refused to raise up offspring for their deceased brothers. Um, that was confusing. We preached on it. Uh, Genesis 34. So um, you can go on down the line and there is a kind of sinful human after sinful human. We see it with David. We see it with Rehoboam, the pride of man. You look at the kings of Israel and it's shocking that these people would be included in a list of one who would be the savior of the world. Manasseh is listed. I know Manasseh repents, but he is recounted as the most wicked 
king in Israel's history. He set up idolatrous places for sacrifice in the temple so that people could burn their children in sacrifice to foreign gods in the temple of God. And Manasseh is listed here. And so I think, why? Why? So Jesus coming and choosing a family to be from and from which he would rescue the world. Why this family? Why include it here in this line? Well, one, it speaks to the unchangeable nature of the purpose of God. God's purpose to bless his people in Christ that he established from before the foundation of the world could not be thwarted by the devil or by the wickedness of men. He is merciful and gracious. He will by no means clear the guilty. He will judge sin. But Jesus Christ came into the world not to judge the world at the first coming, but said that the world through him might be saved and that people might come to him and experience redemption and forgiveness for their sinfulness. And we see from his family, he did not come to hide sin. He came to deal with it. He came to conquer it. This is not uh, brushing under the rug the sins of your family or taking really heinous sins, really serious idolatry against God and trying to shield it from people's view, trying to hide that more embarrassing relative that you don't want to spend around people. He's bringing out everything into the light. And he came to a people like us, a people who need saving. He was, this was a real savior for really sinful people. So I need you to hear this because this is where it gets personal for you. Jesus came to save you from the darkest places by his blood. He came to rescue you from sin's deepest clutches by his resurrection power. There is no sin so deep, so dark, that the blood of Christ cannot redeem you from. And there is no power of sin so strong that Jesus cannot set you free from by his own power and life and righteousness into the wickedness of Israel and into their hopeful longing came mercy and a savior. And I want you to see just hope in just the meaning of his name. When the angel appears to Joseph in verse 21 of this chapter, he says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is what the name Jesus means, Savior. So yes, this is the promised Christ, the anointed one, the one who would be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. But this righteous one, the coming king who would establish his kingdom, is a righteous God and a Savior who would save his people from real sin. Here was the Lamb of God born into our humanity so that he might fulfill the law that we could not keep in ourselves so that he could save his people from our sins at the cross. Just like a Passover lamb, this was a lamb born to die. This is why Jesus came. The cross was in view from the manger so that at the announcement of his arrival, he says, this is the reason why he is coming into the world. He will save you from your sins. This is the way that Christ is a blessing to the nations. Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 7 through 9, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul is writing and saying, when God's saying, Abram, I promise you there is coming an offspring, a son of Abraham, who will be a blessing to all the nations. He is referring to the justification of God for sinful humanity of all who would place their trust in the coming offspring of Abraham. He's saying God, the scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That means God would declare righteous and pardon people's iniquity. Those who place their trust in him from among all peoples. This is not just this myopic promise or this promise that was small in scope just to the physical offspring of Abraham. Paul is writing and saying, you are the offspring of Abraham if you trust in Abraham's son. And the promise to Abraham that this son would be a blessing to all the nations is fulfilled in you experiencing the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ. And the son of Abraham who came so that we might receive the blessing of Abraham is also the son of David who came to be our king forever. He came so that he might assume our humanity The eternal God, the Son, who was never human before this moment, came and assumed our humanity so that he could take our sin to the cross, he could rise from the grave, and now he could be enthroned over the universe, on the throne of David forever as the God-man, the one who is truly God and truly man, the king of all the kings of the earth, the ruler of all mankind This is what Daniel said concerning the Son of Man has now come true in Christ. To him has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Jesus' dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus came. He left heaven so that he could have his rightful place in you. And this is what it means that Jesus is the son of David. He came not, yes, to give you the blessing of Abraham, to make you a child of Abraham by faith, yes. He came to extend to you the blessing of Abraham and to forgive you of your sins. But he also came so that the son of David, who is the ruler over all mankind, might be the ruler in you. He has been raised to the highest place He came not only to forgive you of your sin, but to save you out from it. This is what Eric referred to in Malachi chapter 3, where he is called the refiner. He came, this passage says, to save his people from their sins. It means away from their sins. Not just to save you in the midst of them with his forgiveness, but to actually save you out away from them and to purify you to be a people for his own possession so that he could now by his own life and righteousness overcome in you 
This is the blessing of God in Jesus Christ, that he came. We, we say this often. It would have been enough. This is a term that the Jews used at the Passover meal. We say, Dayenu, God, it would have been enough if you had just done this, if you had just justified us and declared us righteous on the basis of the blood of Christ and forgiven us of our sins, it would have been enough. But you did more than that. You gave us the gift of your spirit so that Jesus Christ might come and take up residence in us and live our, his life through us. And more than that, that would have been enough. But he adopts us as his own children so that you could now, because of the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, have the same relationship with God the Father that is enjoyed by the God the Son. And he did it so that he could make of you a people for his own possession, so that the Son of David could be Lord over every part of your life. So this is a question for you. You may come because it's Christmas season and church is a, a good place to be on Christmas season, or you may come regularly and you know Jesus to be a forgiver. And that's why you came to him. Because the, the prospect of eternity in hell, suffering the judgment of God, is heavy. And you know Jesus to be a forgiver. So you come to Christ as forgiveness. And then you move on from Christ to live your life. Or maybe you come to Christ because you like something transcendent that is beyond you to believe in. You want something to pray to, something to, to look to because you know you need help from outside of yourself. But that is not the Christ of the New Testament. The Jesus who comes to forgive his people of their sins is the Christ who is Lord over all. And so the question is, does Jesus reign in your life? Does he reign over your time? I'm talking about ground level lordship of Christ. Does he reign in your time? Does he reign over your money? Does he reign over your decisions? Does he reign over where you will buy your house or where your kids will go to school? Does he reign in your thoughts? Is he actively saving you from your lusts? Is he saving you from your bitterness and your unforgiveness? Is he saving you from your pride, from your unbelief? I sent this out to the church talking about us meeting needs, but this is from Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. That happened in the person of Christ, bringing salvation for all people. And what does that salvation look like, beloved? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did Christ come? He came to forgive you from your sin, of your sins and to redeem you from your lawlessness. Yes, and he came to purify you, to be a people for his own possession. Jesus came to save you, not just in the midst of your sins, but to save you out away from them. And his salvation continues in your life as you bow your knee to his lordship in your life.
the Jesus who justifies people when we first believed is a Christ who sanctifies his people in holiness and makes us to be a people for his own possession. He is saving us from our sins. And if he is not saving you from your sins, then it is right for you to examine yourself to see, have I really placed my trust in the son of David, in the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, who is, I, when I believed on Jesus, I believed on Jesus, not just as I wanted him to be, but Jesus as he is, a Jesus who came to purify me so that I would belong to him and that I would be a person for his own possession. Listen to Ian Thomas and the way that he describes this lordship of Christ. The Lord Jesus died upon the cross, not just to get you out of hell into heaven. He died upon the cross to get God out of heaven into you. And the measure to which you are saved is the measure to which God out of heaven in you is in function, actually calling the shots, actually controlling what you do with your hands, actually controlling where you go with your feet, actually controlling what you say with your lips, what you think with your mind, actually controlling the decisions that you make. That is the measure in which you are saved. And so this is the question, friend. Do you know him? And if you know him, are you bowing your knee to him? Not just as you will one day, because there is coming a day when every knee will bow to him in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. But he calls people to come to him now. He is a God rich in mercy. This is what Paul said. This is a trustworthy statement. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am foremost. And he saved me as the foremost so that he might display his perfect patience as an example to all who would believe. And so the invitation is open to everyone in the room, everyone within the sound of my voice. There is not a sin that you have committed that is more powerful or too dark to be brought into the light of Christ's face, to be covered by the blood of Christ. And he says, I will remove your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. But the God who removes our sins from us is the God who did so so that we might be purified, a people for his own possession, so that we would press on into holiness in the fear of God. So Eric, man, you can come back up. Um, But I I want us to respond to Jesus, the son of Abraham, son of David, the one who is Christ, the one who is the long-awaited one, who is king over all. Maybe this morning you're in a season of waiting, of silence. You feel more like Israel in the midst of the promises and in the longing Before Christ came, they had 400 years of silence from God. And this Christmas, it feels like that's the season that you're in. And it seems almost that hope has been lost. And I just invite you to preach to your heart today. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. God remembered his covenant to Abraham. 
He remembered his covenant to David. He kept every single one of his promises. And if you are in Christ, he has brought you into a new covenant. He himself has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is alive and is on his throne and he is for you. In the midst of everything that you can't see or understand why he's doing what he's doing, you need to trust God's word that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and he's kind in all of his works. Don't judge him by your feeble sense, but trust him. Trust him. He will keep his promise. He is here and he is coming again. And the second group, maybe you're here and God's revealing to you that in truth, you have never truly bowed your knee to King Jesus. And so you have never truly experienced the forgiveness of your sins. You've never truly experienced him saving you from your sins. And the invitation to you is first a proclamation to you. Christ is the king over all. And the question is, is he your king? You don't make him the Lord over all. You acknowledge him as he is. Jesus, you are the son of David. You came to rescue us. And what he came to rescue you from is your independence from him, of living your life apart from him and his lordship, of enjoying things in life above him. And Peter, when he's preaching after the giving of the Spirit to the crowds in Jerusalem, he says that God has sent Christ to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He sent Christ to bless you so that he could save you from yourself, so he could save you from real sin, and you could really truly belong to him and actually experience what he made you for, to have a relationship with God and to be filled with the life of God himself on the inside. And so your whole life, you've, you felt like a car that took diesel gas with regular gasoline in it, and it just hasn't worked because God made you to be filled with himself. And instead, you've stuck everything else in that tank, and it's never satisfied. It's always been like gravel in your mouth. And God is saying, the invitation is open. I will clean you out. I will remove from you all the things that you've chosen instead of me, and I will replace them with myself. And you will experience life and joy as he intended for you to experience it. God restored to your heart. Peace with God who came to redeem you to be a people for his own possession. And then for all of us who claim Christ, who claim to have turned from our sin and placed our trust in him, this is a call to us to trust him afresh, to bow your knee to him afresh. Jesus, search our lives. Is there any part of us that we have shielded from his lordship, that we have shielded from his view, that we have said, God, this far you may come, but no further? or some part of your life that you have left unconfessed because you don't think that Jesus is actually strong enough to deliver you from it, or you've hidden it from the people of God because it's too dark or it's too shameful or you don't want to experience condemnation. Instead of bringing your sin to the light, 
so that Jesus can demonstrate that he is just and faithful to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that though the night is long and there are seasons in our life where hope seems to be lost, we can trust you, this promise-making, promise-keeping God. You have demonstrated your love with finality at the cross where Jesus gave his life for sinners so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Father, I'm praying for people who can hear my voice and who have heard this word, that we would come to Jesus as he is and that you would have the reason why you came in us. Yes, Lord, to forgive us of our sins, but also to be our exodus out of them, out of the land of slavery and into the promised land of your freedom and your rest. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and convict us and to have your way in us. Search our hearts. Let no part of our life be shielded from the authority and the kindness and the goodness of Jesus. Lord, you make us a holy people for your own possession. And I pray, Father, in a room this size, certainly there are people who have believed that they have known you, who have considered themselves Christians and they are recognizing this morning as a gift from you that they have never truly bowed their knee to Jesus as their God. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that today, if they hear your voice, that they would not harden your heart as in the rebellion, but that they would call on the name of Jesus and be saved. Lord, thank you for the greatness of your salvation, that you're sufficient, not just to forgive us of our sins, but to save us to the uttermost, to save us all the way as we draw near to the Father through you. We sing, worthy is the Lamb. Lord Jesus, praise you that you came to take away the sins of the world. Would you have your way in us this morning? Amen.